0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. In tonight's session, we slow our progress somewhat through The Lord of the Rings, gathering our strength before the final chapters of The Two Towers play out over the course of the next few weeks. Tonight, we study Book 4, Chapter 7, The Crossroads, in some significant depth. We were supposed to cover The Crossroads in last week's session, and I had pulled, I think, three slides. I have now pulled 10 slides from this chapter because this feels like a chapter that on the one hand, is fairly inconsequential. It's another travel chapter. You guys, we get a lot of landscape description. But for all of that, it is wildly significant, and I want to delve a little more deeply into that, which conveniently frees up our schedule sufficiently so that next week we can focus on chapters eight and nine on the stairs of Kerith Ungol and Shelob's Lair, followed the week after by chapter 10, The Choices of Master Samwise. Obviously, Both of those readings are particularly intense, are particularly significant, and if you are so inclined to place a wager upon the chances of me weeping openly during a there and back again session, next week would be a pretty safe bet, it turns out. Next week we're going to have that great conversation between Sam and Frodo. This week, a lot of traveling. This week, Heading to the crossroads, heading toward the Morgul Vale. I cannot wait, though, to conclude our discussion of uh, of the two towers over the course of the next few weeks, then plunge recklessly into uh, the return of the king. Welcome to Chris and to Brian, particularly, who are joining us for the first time this evening, and to Nikki and to Becca and to Axis Stargazer and to, to Galadra Becky, who is joining us here, and to Shane and to everyone else who has made it out to this live session. Guys, thank you so much for being here. As we settle down to begin tonight's session, though, I must point out that I am sipping coffee from my brand new and very very excellent uh, Harry Potter mug, my uh, my Marauders map I solemnly swear that I am up to no good mug. And it occurs to me that I really need a good Tolkien mug. I really need like a good Lord of the Rings mug. So if you guys know where I can find such a thing, please post your recommendations over on the forum at pointnorthmedia.com slash forum. Let's begin this week by catching up with the timeline because some time has passed and we have now past the conclusion of book three of The Two Towers. We have now passed the events at, at, first of all, of course, the Battle of Helms Deep, and then the events at Isengard, the events at Orthanc, and the separation of that company in the aftermath of the confrontation with Saruman. So let's take a quick look at the uh, at the timeline. All of these events, of course, take place in the year 3019 of the Third Age. That's 1419 by Shire Reckoning. On March the 2nd, Frodo leaves the Dead, uh, the dead Marshes. Gandalf heals Theodore and the Ents march on Isengard. All of that happened a week ago now, back on March 2nd. On March 3rd, we get the Battle of Helm's Deep beginning and the Ents destroy Isengard. On March 4th, Theoden and Gandalf ride to Isengard. On March 5th, we get the Parley with Saruman, the casting down of the Palantir by Wormtongue onto the steps of Orthanc there. And we also get Frodo arriving at Morannon, watching the Black Gate and realizing that there is, in fact, no way through, only for Gollum to lead him south now, down into Ithilion. On March 7th, Frodo is taken by Faramir to Henneth Anun. On March 8th, this is where we're picking up with today's reading, Frodo leaves Henneth Anun, And then on March 9th at dusk, Frodo reaches the Morgul road and the darkness begins to flow out of Mordor. More on that when we get to it. So this is our timeline, and I actually want to pull a question, an early question here from Ryan in the chat. Have we discussed the use of of the modern or real world names of the months, asked uh, Ryan. I always bump on the use of September or January as not really fitting the fantastical world of Middle-earth. Frankly, yes. Frankly, yes. Um, I always hesitate a little when we get specific dates. I hesitated a little back in the pages of The Hobbit, and that is much more in accord with a modern kind of mythic perspective on ancient history, so it bothers me less even in The Hobbit. But yes, it does feel a little a little counterintuitive, a little thin. Given the depth of Tolkien's secondary creation here within the frame of the Lord of the Rings, it feels as though we should have a constructed calendar and we don't. We, well... We do to a certain degree. The calendar that we're using here in the frame of the Lord of the Rings and the frame of the Hobbit is not quite the calendar that we have here in the 21st century. It's not quite our calendar. In Tolkien's conception, each of the 12 months has 30 days, and then there are a few extra days added on at High Summer and over the the Winter Festival at the end of December. So that's enough to, to kind of square away our astronomical understanding of the duration of the year. So it's not quite our calendar, but it is awfully close. It happens like this, I think. Tolkien made this choice for two distinct reasons. The first is the... The textual history of the book that we are holding in our hands, I suppose. We can understand quite freely that the dates given within the frame of this book are actually later editions by subsequent translators and adapters, people who touched this manuscript, who altered this manuscript after it passed out of the hands of the hobbits who wrote it, Bilbo, Frodo, and Sam. After the the red book is Taken up by the course and the current of history, many other people touch this book before it even gets to Professor Tolkien, right? The, The fictional frame, of course, being that Professor Tolkien has unearthed this manuscript and is presenting it to us in a translated modern form, an accessible modern form. But still, it is an existing text within the fictional frame. So it's entirely possible that a modern or relatively modern narrator, a relatively modern adapter, made the choices to the original calendar that was embedded within the frame of this book. That's kind of the textual history of it. The other reason that we refer to our real-world calendar well, okay, I guess there are actually three reasons. The second reason is simply that it helps us keep track of dates and that, that Tolkien doesn't have to dive into the creation of an alternate calendar. So that's convenient and useful. It helps us understand what is happening and when as these stories are continuing to to separate, they're continuing to, to bifurcate as we move forward through the course of this narrative. We talked about that at length as we started The Two Towers and we followed the Aragorn Legolas, Gimli, Merry Pippin story over on the, the one branch of our, our path here in book three. And now, of course, the Frodo, Sam, Gollum, Faramir, Cerith Ungle side of the story here in book four of The Two Towers. But I think the most important reason why we are using this Tr- this this transparent acceptable you know understandable calendar is simply that this is supposed to be in some sense the ancient history of our world this is still a part of tolkien's legendarium less so now than it was in its initial conception less so now than when he was first developing the stories that would become the silmarillion but this is still supposed to be the ancient past So it's understandable that he's leaning into this desire to anchor these events in something that is recognizable to us. But yes, honestly, just as a reader, I also stumble a little bit over it, at least once we leave the Shire. I'm I'm perfectly happy, in fact, with these dates being Shire reckoning more than I am with them being, you know, Gondorian in nature or Numenorean in nature or certainly, you know, related to the Dunedain in the north. But yes, it is a bit of a stumbling block for many readers and for me Two, right? Let's, um, <laughs> let's get into our discussion tonight. We're going to go back uh, to chapter six. We've got two more slides to cover from chapter six before we plunge into chapter seven. So, hey, you guys, we get just a little more Faramir, just a little Faramir to ease us into our journey. Let's begin with this discussion. Frodo continued, For he said that there is, or there may be, a path near to Minas Ithil. Minas Morgul, said Faramir. "'I do not know clearly,' said Frodo. "'But the path climbs, I think, up into the mountains "'on the northern side of that vale where the old city stands. "'It goes up to a high cleft and so down to that which is beyond.' "'Do you know the name of that high pass?' said Faramir. "'No,' said Frodo.' "'It is called Girith Ungol.' "'Gollum hissed sharply and began muttering to himself. "'Is not that its name?' said Faramir, turning to him. "'No!' said Gollum. "'But then he squealed as if something had stabbed him. "'Yes, yes, we heard the name once, "'but what does the name matter to us? "'Master says he must get in, so we must try some way. "'There is no other way to try, no.' "'No other way?' said Faramir. "'How do you know that? "'And who has explored all the confines of that dark realm?' "'He looked long and thoughtfully at Gollum. "'Presently he spoke again.' Take this creature away, Anborn. Treat him gently, but watch him, and do not, you, Smeagol, try to dive into the falls. The rocks have such teeth as they would slay you before your time. Leave us now, and take your fish. Anborn went out, and Gollum went cringing before him. The curtain was drawn across the recess. Faramir here, concerned with the path that Frodo is planning to take, concerned that Frodo is, with the exception of and with the exception of the Black Gate, Frodo isn't just taking a heavily guarded road here into into Mordor, he is taking the most heavily guarded road into Mordor. And even including Morannon, even including the host of orcs that boil like termites out of the mountains surrounding the Black Gate, this is still the more dangerous path to Faramir's mind because of Minas Morgul, because of the tower of dark sorcery that once was uh, Minas Ithil, and we can catch here, too, his subtle correction of Frodo. uh, Frodo says, for he said that there is or there may be a path near to Minas Ithil. Minas Morgul, said Faramir, offering that subtle correction. No, no, no. That hasn't been the tower of the moon for the longest time. It is now the tower of dark sorcery. And of course, staying on top of Gollum too. No other way? How do you know that? And who has explored all the confines of that dark realm? And no answer is forthcoming from Gollum. No answer is provided by Gollum here. This is the path that he is going to take. And we, I think are clued to see, because of Gollum and Smeagol's earlier conversation, the two sides of Gollum having that discussion, as you remember, about her, that, that she could take care of the nasty hobbits, we are clued to expect that this is not perhaps as safe a path, even as safe a path as Gollum might present it as, and he's not even presenting it as a terribly safe path. Let's talk a little more about Kidith Ungol in probably the longest slide that I could conceivably pull during this entire session. Frodo... ''I think you do very unwisely in this,'' said Faramir. ''I do not think you should go with this creature. It is wicked.'' ''No, not altogether wicked,'' said Frodo. ''Not wholly, perhaps,'' said Faramir, ''but malice eats it like a canker and the evil is growing. He will lead you to no good. If you will part with him, I will give him safe conduct and guidance to any point on the borders of Gondor that he may name.'' ''He would not take it,'' said Frodo. ''He would follow after me, as he long has done.'' and I have promised many times to take him under my protection and to go where he led. You would not ask me to break faith with him. No, said Faramir, but my heart would, for it seems less evil to counsel other men to break troth than to do so oneself, especially if one sees a friend bound on witting to his own harm. But no, if he will go with you, you must now endure him. But I uh, do not think you are holden to go to Kirith Ungle, of which he has told you less than he knows. That much I perceived clearly in his mind. Do not go to Kirith Ungol. "'Where then shall I go?' said Frodo. "'Back to the Black Gate and deliver myself up to the guard? "'What do you know of this place that makes its name so dreadful?' "'Nothing certain,' said Faramir. "'We of Gondor do not ever pass east of the road in these days, "'and none of us younger men has ever done so, "'nor has any of us set foot upon the Mountains of Shadow. "'Of them we know any only old report and the rumour of bygone days. "'But there is some dark terror that dwells in the passes above Minas Morgul. "'If Cirith Ungol is named, "'old men and masters of lore will blanch and fall silent.' The valley of Minas Morgul passed into evil very long ago, and it was a menace and a dread while the banished enemy dwelt yet far away, and Ithilien was still for the most part in our keeping. As you know, that city was once a strong place, proud and fair, Minas Ithil, the twin sister of our own city, but it was taken by fell men whom the enemy in his first strength had dominated and who had wandered homeless and masterless after his fall. It is said that their lords were men of Numenor who had fallen into dark wickedness. To them the enemy had given rings of power, and he had devoured them. Living ghosts, they had be- They were become terrible and evil. After his going, they took Minas Ethel and dwelt there, and they filled it and all the valley about with decay. It seemed empty, and was not so, for a shapeless fear lived within the ruined walls. Nine lords there were, and after the return of their master, which they aided and prepared in secret, they grew strong again. Then the nine riders issued forth from the gates of horror, and we could not withstand them. Do not approach their citadel. You will be espied. It is a place of sleepless malice, full of lidless eyes. Do not go that way. Faramir holding nothing back in his counsel to Frodo here. There are a couple of really interesting elements. The first, of course, is this exchange about Gollum right at the beginning of this passage. I do not think you should go with this creature. It is wicked. No, not altogether wicked, said Frodo. Not holy, perhaps but malice eats it like a canker and the evil is growing. This too seems to be something of which Faramir is sure. Not just that the evil is growing within him, of course, but that he has told you less than he knows of Kidith Ungol. That much I perceived clearly in his mind. Faramir is as not quite of a kingly line, but of a Quasi-regal line of the line of the stewards of Gondor, possessed of some of that discernment, some of that acuity, some of that wisdom and understanding that we have previously credited to characters like Aragorn, right? Aragorn sees clearly, he knows the hearts of men, and Faramir apparently does too. And he counsels Frodo directly: do not go. I do not think you are holding to go to Ungol, of which he has told you less than he knows that much. I perceive clearly in his mind. Do not go. To Ungol. And Frodo fairly says, then what? What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to go back to the Black Gate and surrender myself to the guard? Like, have you seen it? Do you know what is there? There is no way through Morannon into Mordor. There just isn't. If this is a chance, then I have to take that chance. I love, too, this little beat that we get with Faramir here. Uh, you would not ask me to break faith with him, says Frodo, referring to the promise that he has made to Gollum. And here again, of course, we get this perspective on, on... Kingliness on on a kind of decency that supersedes just personal goodness and kind of speaks to one's place in one's own social hierarchy. Right that that Frodo here has taken Gollum's promise, the promise coerced out of him, the the promise dominated by the ring itself, by the precious, he has taken Gollum's promise and in so doing has offered a reciprocal promise. This is how the feudal relationship works. Yes, Gollum is now bound to his master as a servant, not like Sam, but not unlike Sam. And Frodo, therefore, is bound to Gollum in much the same way as he too is bound to Sam. This is the reciprocal relationship. This is what... Good lords do what good kings do. No, said Faramir, but my heart would. Yeah, okay, I wouldn't consciously, like, counsel you to break your troth. No, should you break your promise to Gollum? Should you discard the promise that you took? Should you discard this this bond between the two of you? No, no, I would never say that. But my heart desires it. My heart urges you to do exactly that. There's an imbalance here between the heart and the mind, I suppose, instinctively. My my emotional response, my gut response here is to say, yes, absolutely dispense of this word that you have given to Gollum. Get far away from him. I will take him. Faramir, again, leaning into this desire, mm, desire, leaning into this willingness to do what is right at the expense of his word, it is one thing for Frodo and Sam to find their way into Athelion, right? As we learned in last week's session, that is death. The, the fate that should befall Frodo and Sam now is death. Instead, Faramir has given them the freedom of all of Gondor for a year and a day. He has broken his word to his father, to his ruler, to the steward of Gondor, basically in effect to his king. He has broken his word of duty here, and now he's willing to extend that still further. It's one thing for Frodo and Sam to find a way into Athelion and be preserved. It's one thing for these hobbits of good heart and good nature with a connection to Gondor anyway, through their personal relationship with Boromir. It's one thing for them to be preserved, but Gollum is clearly a servant of evil. Gollum is clearly a wicked creature in and of himself, but Faramir is still willing to support Frodo. He's still willing to to break the rules, I mean, to to violate his own duty, his own sense of honor, in order to ease Frodo's journey here. I will take him to the borders, I'll take him anywhere he wants to go, and then I'll set him free. Like, that is... This is, at the very least, the end of Faramir's career as captain of the Guard of Gondor, but also, very conceivably, the end of Faramir's life. This is treason that he is suggesting here. He is absolutely betraying the instructions that have been laid upon him, the most sacred instructions that have been laid upon him, and he's willing to do that for Frodo. But Frodo refuses. No, I I can't do that. You would not ask me to break faith with him. And Faramir says, no, but my heart would, for it seems less evil to counsel another man to break troth than to do so oneself, especially if one sees a friend bound unwitting to his own harm. This is the wisdom of Faramir. He understands that Actually, it is easy to counsel someone else, to suggest to someone else that they behave in a less than honorable fashion, particularly if you can see the path that they are on and you can see the, the shadow that they are about to fall under, the danger that awaits them. Yeah, it's easy to say, well, you know, promises, is a moral gray area. And did you really like mean to give this promise when you gave it? Is this like the best thing that you could do? Is there not like a, an argument of functional utility here? Is there not like a utility Argument here that actually maybe we could just shuffle Gollum off and no harm will come to him. Like there's there's going to be no pain, there's going to be no suffering here. And Frodo says, "No, this is the promise that I have made." We of Gondor says Faramir, "Do not ever pass east of the road in these days, and none of us younger man has ever done so. Nor has any of us set foot upon the mountains of shadow." This is why the crossroads is so significant. Ithilien, I mean, Osgiliath to a certain extent and and Ithilien in general is a kind of disputed land. It has been taken by the enemy in the sense that there are now no communities here. There is no, uh, no constant civil Gondorian presence within Ithilien at this time. It has fallen. It is disputed. But the land beyond the crossroads is not disputed. The land beyond that road is not disputed. That is the land of the enemy. That has no man of Faramir's generation has ever even set foot there. None of them have crossed that road. And that is exactly what Frodo and Sam propose to do. And it's still, it's still more dangerous. It was taken by Thalman, talking about Minas Ithil that has been corrupted into Minas Morgul, the tower of dark sorcery. It was taken by Thalman whom the enemy in his first strength had dominated and who wandered homeless and masterless after his fall. It is said that their lords were men of Numenor who had fallen into dark wickedness. Hey, remember our discussion earlier about the taxonomy of men, about the high man and the middle man and the wild man? These are wild men. These are men who fell into wildness from the greatest heights of, of Numenorean virtue. These were Numenorian fellows who fell into dark wickedness. To them, the enemy had given rings of power and he had devoured them. Living ghosts, they were become terrible and evil. The Nazgul, the Nazgul, took Minas Ithil back in the day. The Nazgul have inhabited it, have corrupted it into Minas Morgul, this shapeless fear living within the ruined walls. Nine lords there were, and after the return of their master, which they aided and prepared in secret, they grew strong again. Then the nine riders issued forth from their gates of horror, and we could not withstand them. Do not approach their citadel. You will be espied. It is a place of sleepless malice, full of lidless eyes. Do not go that way. And yet... What choice does Frodo have? Or, I suppose a more interesting question, what hope does Frodo have? And the answer, as we've been speculating about throughout our discussion of Book 4 of The Lord of the Rings, is basically none basically none there is slim hope in the same way as as Fro- as gollum is not altogether wicked as frodo says frodo does not say well look you just don't understand gollum he's really been through it like he's been corrupted by the ring i have hope of his redemption like like maybe maybe there's something good in there no he's wicked but maybe not altogether wicked yeah, we have no hope of passing Kerith We have no hope of passing this place of, of sleepless malice, full of lidless eyes. But maybe there's just a spark of hope. And that is all that we have. This is not a calculated risk. This is desperate. This is the only path open to us. Let me see. Uh Nikki saying the Nazgul corrupting Minas Ithil is like the orcs destroying and corrupting where they roam as evil tends to do. And Seastar says, who's lidless eyes? Lidless eyes here, very interesting, of course, because the lidless eye is connected more commonly with Barad-dûr and with the presence of Sauron himself. What are the lidless eyes that that live still in Minas Morgul? Well, a place of sleepless malice full of lidless eyes. The Nazgul themselves. I mean, the Nazgul cannot actually see, but because they cannot see, they cannot be blinded by the physical world, right? Their sight cannot be occluded because they have no sight to begin with. Their senses are still acute. Metaphorically, their senses are... Are unceasing. They are are unresting in that sense. So they are possessed of lidless eyes, even if their eyes themselves, you know, do not function, even if they themselves cannot see. But yeah, that that's certainly my reading of it. Um let me see here as I scroll back. You guys are chatty tonight. Look at this. Um this is interesting. Would he have done the same if there was a king and not a steward in power? says Axis Stargazer, asking, I believe, about uh about Faramir here. Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, Yes, I, I think that he would. And I think that that may not be true of all men of Gondor. But I do think that it would be true of Faramir, because Faramir is compelled by two loyalties here, by twin loyalties here, right? In terms of his function within the the military structure of Gondor, he is compelled by two loyalties, twin loyalties. The first is to his ruler, Denethor, the steward of Gondor, he who stands in the place of the king. And a steward is not... uh, a figurehead the steward is not an empty you know um an empty symbol the steward is not a a bureaucrat the steward is functionally the king the steward holds the power of the king until the king's return that is what in the medieval tradition a steward did but as important Denethor is also Faramir's father and that connection is of of absolute importance we can't I would be loath to, I would be extremely reluctant to downplay the weight of Faramir's duty here, the weight of Faramir's loyalty to his father, to the steward of Gondor, because to do so, I think detracts from his valor in this instance, from his sense of justice here in in granting to Frodo and Sam the freedom of Gondor for a year and a day in his offer to escort Gollum escort this wicked creature this servant of the enemy this thing that has been corrupted in exactly the same way by the way that the Nazgûl were corrupted and he now knows that Frodo has told him that Gollum bore the one ring for a significant period of time and then he says oh yeah Minas um it was beloved you know back when it was the tower of stars it was it was this this great bastion of goodness and of Numenorean strength here in Middle Earth, and it was taken by people who were corrupted by oh that's right rings lesser rings actually like not even the One Ring these nine rings given to mortal man ah, this is these are, these are nothing these are trinkets compared to the One Ring but I will B T Dubs take this creature who has been corrupted by the One Ring who is this this proto Nazgul for all Faramir knows and escort him to the borders of Gondor. Gollum is not going to then go off and live a quiet life. He's not going to move quietly into retirement. Go off and live with, you know, Beorn on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains. Just just go off and pass his days with with bread and honey and cream in Beorn's hall. No, he's going to continue to scheme and continue to be evil, to be wicked. And Faramir makes the choice that he makes because he understands the importance of Frodo's quest. He is willing to to sacrifice his own standing, his own position, and his own opportunity for goodness, right? This isn't just, this isn't just, you know, <laughs> humility, I suppose, right? This isn't just Faramir saying, well, Frodo, you're clearly more important than I am. Frodo, son of Drogo, ring bearer, you are clearly more important than I am, so I'll sacrifice my career. Like, I will step back and, and support you in any way that I can. It's not just that, because Faramir also is capable of achieving, Well, if not outright good, then at least preserving that which they protect, right? He's still preserving... He, he's not loving the sword for its sharpness or the arrow for its swiftness. He's loving that which they protect. He wants Minas Tirith to be preserved. He wants Gondor to endure. He wants the enemy to be vanquished. And he is playing a crucial role in that here as as guard captain, patrolling Ithilien for signs of, of Sauron's forces, for signs of, of wickedness, for signs of encroaching uh, corruption here. He is doing the most important thing that he can do And he understands, it's very clear when he's talking about returning to to Denethor, that this could come to an end. The good that he can do is less significant than the hope of the good that Frodo can do, but it is still the thinnest and slimmest hope here. Um, Excellent. Oh, there is a note here, too. <laughs> uh, there is some dark terror, he says, that dwells in the passes above Minas Morgul. If Kiddeth Ungul is named, old men and masters of lore will blanch and fall silent. I don't know what's up with the cleft of the spider. Um, there's some kind of great evil up there in the cleft of the spider. If you go to the spider's cleft, you'll probably run into some kind of really super dangerous thing, but I've no idea what that could be um, there in the cleft of the spider. Actually, this is being slightly unfair. This is, this, is, this is kind of a retcon by Tolkien at this point, because at this point, when he is actually writing The Lord of the Rings, Kirith Ungol does not mean the cleft of the spider. It means the cleft of shadows. Tolkien... Retroactively changes the Sindarin meaning of of Ungol there, which of course is the root form of of the name Ungoliant, right? The the the, the greatest dark, sprawling, evil spider creature that has ever lived. Of, of which Shilob is a spawn, of course, but Shilob is is nothing compared to Ungoliant. Like Ungoliant was the bigger bad there, but that transition has not yet occurred, so it's not. <laughs> if you have a knowledge of Sindarin and you hear Faramir talking about, yeah, no, Kirith Ungle, probably some kind of, I don't know, orc, Pro- probably like an orc, right? There's probably an orc living there in the cleft of shadows, well, in the cleft of spiders. No, not necessarily fair because it is just, it is the shadow cleft or the cleft of shadows there, Kirith Ungol at that time. Though, of course, later it will be retconned. It will be, the, the, the meaning of the word will be altered by Tolkien, but only after he wrote this uh, particular chapter. A little bit of uh, background here on Minas Ithil. I know that we've talked about this tower before, that we the, the, the Tower of the Moon stood, you know, on the eastern flank of Osgiliath. Osgiliath was was flanked by these two towers, what has become Minas Tirith, the Tower of Guard on the western side, and Minas Ithil that has become Minas Morgul on the eastern side, with the the new battlefield of Osgiliath between them here. Minas Ithil was built in the Second Age. We don't have a precise date for the founding of Osgiliath and for the building of, of these towers. And when we say towers too... It's not a tower in the way that Orthanc is a tower, right? It's not a, a single edifice. It is a city. It is an encampment. It is a fortress. It is a bastion. Like It is a, a serious bit of architecture here on the eastern flank of uh, of Osgiliath, in exactly the same way as Minas Tirith is also not a singular tower. It is also a small satellite colony city uh, associated with Osgiliath. So Minas Tirith is built sometime in the Second Age. It actually falls to Sauron during the War of the Last Alliance and the run-up to the War of the Last Alliance, but it is reclaimed prior to the Battle of Dugala, prior to the the last battle of the Last Alliance there at at Morannon. And then it, it enters the Third Age relatively peacefully, one and a half thousand years go by, then in about 1600 of the Third Age, it is struck by a horrifying plague. It is, uh, it is beset by plague. This is one of the, the plans of Sauron, one of the fell influences of Sauron at this time. And then it ultimately falls to Sauron's forces in about the year 2000 of the Third Age. So a thousand years ago, for a thousand years, Minas Ithil has, has been Minas Morgul. It has, it has fallen under that, that dark influence there. Um let me see here. Uh, Brian's pointing out Shelob had the spiders in the Hobbit as well so they 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 cancel out there. Oh we're talking about uh over oh, oh, to- I I see. Yeah, we're we're talking about Aragog from uh from the Forbidden Forest in Harry Potter and how Aragog matches up to Shelob. Uh, yeah, no, Shelob would eat Aragog for breakfast, like would literally eat Aragog for breakfast and all of the other Acromantulas too. Like this is beyond compare. But yes, the dark spiders, the black spiders that we met in Mirkwood in the frame of the Hobbit are the spawn of Shelob, right? She has, she's now the last of Ungoliant's spawn to, uh, to, to survive, the last to endure here within the frame of Middle-earth. So she is now the biggest bad. Like, she was the lesser bad, the spawn of Ungoliant, but she is now the biggest bad that remains. And the dark spiders in Mirkwood and in other places are are less, uh, less powerful than she, which is an interesting example of evil diminishing too, right? We, we generally think of evil growing in magnitude and in power, but that... Well, I suppose I suppose that we do. That, that's that's actually a little simplistic. That's a, uh, maybe we'll talk about the development of evil as we get into Mordor proper, right there at the beginning of the Return of the King. Good. Okay, let me see as I catch up here. Uh, Jackie saying, and the forces of Gondor just kind of let the shadow creep back across the land by gradually letting their guard down. Right. This is the problem with. Um, with what Faramir was discussing in last week's reading that that they were convinced that the enemy had been defeated they they thought that the enemy had been destroyed and so they let their guard down they are to blame for the falling of Minas could they have withstood the the coming of the Nazgûl could they have withstood the the scourge of Sauron probably not like probably not but they could have endured longer had they not let their guard down, that they had slipped into their dotage, as Faramir says. All right, so all of that is from chapter six. Let's push on into chapter seven and begin with Awaiting Silence. Frodo and Sam returned to their beds and lay there in silence, resting for a little, while men bestirred themselves and the business of the day began. After a while, water was brought to them and then they were led to a table where food was set for three. Faramir broke his fast with them. He had not slept since the battle on the day before, yet he did not look weary. When they had finished, they stood up, May no hunger trouble you on the road, said Faramir. You have little provision, but some small store of food fit for travelers I have ordered to be stowed in your packs. You will have no lack of water as you walk in Ithilien, but do not drink of any stream that flows from Imlad Morgul, the valley of living death. This also, I must tell you, my scouts and watchers have all returned, even some that have crept within sight of the Morannon. They all find a strange thing. The land is empty. "'Nothing is on the road, and no sound of foot or horn or bowstring is anywhere to be heard. A waiting silence broods above the nameless land. "'I do not know what this portends, but the time draws swiftly to some great conclusion. "'Storm is coming. "'Hasten while you may. "'If you are ready, let us go. "'The sun will soon rise above the shadow.' "'The hobbits' packs were brought to them a little heavier than they had been, "'and also two stout staves of polished wood shod with iron and with carven heads "'through which ran plaited leathern thongs.' "'I have no fitting gifts to give you at our parting,' said Faramir. "'But take these staves. "'They may be of service to those who walk or climb in the wild. "'The men of the White Mountains use them, "'though these have been cut down to your height and newly shod. "'They are made of the fair tree Lebethron, "'beloved of the woodrights of Gondor, "'and a virtue has been set upon them of finding and returning. "'May that virtue not wholly fail under the shadow into which you go.' "'The hobbits bowed low. "'Most gracious host,' said Frodo. "'It was said to me by Elrond Half-Elven "'that I should find friendship upon the way secret and unlooked for.' Certainly, I looked for no such friendship as you have shown. To have found it turns evil to great good. Another parting of the ways here, though we'll get to the actual parting of the ways in the next slide, but Faramir here provisioning the hobbits as best he can. He cannot send a host of men with them and indeed sending a host of men with them would be foolish they are going to pass beneath the watchful gaze of Minas Morgul they are going to pass through Kirith Ungol and a single man of Gondor walking with them would blow the whole thing wide open and it can be difficult sometimes to to kind of parse Faramir's reasoning here and I don't think that he is being in any way unwise. I think that it is absolutely the right choice to send Frodo and Sam on alone. If you acknowledge this, this desperate million-to-one Hail Mary shot that they have of ridding the world of evil once and for all, asterisk, maybe once and for all this time we really mean it, if you acknowledge the necessity of this, then choosing not to send man with Frodo and Sam is actually wise the world is holding its breath. He knows that there are no major encampments, that there are no major military forces between here and the crossroads at least, right? He said that some of his scouts, some of his spies have ventured even north enough to to see Morannon and the land itself is empty. So Frodo and Sam are safe enough and hobbits can travel silently. Hobbits can travel in a way that the men of Gondor cannot. Hobbits can travel in a way that, that that Aragorn of the Dunedain cannot, right? This is this is almost borderline supernatural here, and Gollum obviously has that skill too. So he is provisioning them as best he can. Here is some food. You'll have water for as long as you're in Athelion. Good luck after that. Don't drink the water. Like I understand that it's going to be super tempting and that you can't carry that much with you, but don't drink the water once you're in, uh, once you're in the Morgul Vale, once you're in Imlad Morgul, the Valley of Living Death. Imlad Morgul, there, meaning the Morgul Vale specifically. This is the same root that gives us, of course, Imladris, the the alternate name, the Sindarin name for for Rivendell. Uh, Imlad here meaning meaning um, vale or valley, right? Uh, Imladris, the ris there just means um, actually it literally. Trans- translates into like rift, but but like cleft. So it is the valley of the cleft rock. So it is this, this sense of, of being hidden and concealed. That is Imladris, Rivendell, as we know it better. Imlad Morgul, the Morgul Vale. Though interestingly, he gives us an alternate translation here. The valley of living death. Do not drink of any stream that flows from Imlad Morgul, the valley of living death. Morgul does not mean living death. That is not the translation of Morgul. Morgul means generally sorcery but with the connotation of dark sorcery right the, the mortgal blade minus mortgal these words uh, this this word means this this dark and malevolent sorcery sorcery here distinct from i suppose a a healthier kind of magic right we we don't generally use sorcery that's an interesting question actually i'm i'm asserting this to be true and i'm just now running through the entire book in my mind trying to think of other examples do we use sorcery to mean good magic in the lord of the rings i don't think that we do but whether we do or not certainly the word morgul has this association of, of evil sorcery but the valley of living death this is something else entirely this is clearly some gondorian term for for uh, for inland morgul there so this also, I must tell you, my scouts and watchers have all returned. Nothing is is out there. Nothing is out there on the road. The world is holding its breath. Awaiting silence broods above the nameless land. I do not know what this portends, but the time draws swiftly to some great conclusion. Storm is coming. We are on the clock. And by the end of this chapter, we're going to get an even more powerful sense of that the imminent manifestation of Sauron, the imminent manifestation of, of evil, the imminent coming of the shadow, the actual coming of the shadow, in fact, with the darkness that spills forth from Mordor and which will endure for, for many days, will endure, you know, minor spoilers for the return of the king, up to the Battle of the Palinor Fields, right? From Between now and then, the world is going to be shrouded in darkness. March 10th, the following day, the, the day that will begin next week's reading, is known as the Day Without a Dawn. Because the darkness has come on, the darkness has taken them. So the hobbits' packs were uh, packs were brought to them a little heavier than they had been, and also two stout staves of polished wood. So these are staves that 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 Faramir has presumably been carrying with him, carved of Lebethrin, beloved of the Woodwrights of Gondor. So we should parse this a little carefully, right? These staffs already existed. These staves already existed, right? He has cut them down to make them appropriate for Hobbit size, and they have been reshod. That is, they have been recapped with metal so that they can better endure the pounding of the earth as they march along without, without splintering. And a virtue has been set upon them of finding and returning. May that virtue not wholly fail under the shadow into which you go. I don't know where and when that virtue was set upon them. I mean, the virtue here is a kind of blessing. Is it possessed of any actual magical power? Well, we just don't know, maybe. But positive desire, the, the desire to set a virtue in the world of, of the Lord of the Rings seems to actually have some power, seems to actually carry some weight and some significance and some good with it. So these are lightly enchanted staves now to match the, the elven cloaks and the elven clasps that, that uh, Frodo and Sam are wearing. May that virtue not wholly fail under the shadow into which you go. And then we get Frodo and his, his hobbit courtesy here. Most gracious host, said Frodo. It was said to me by Elrond half-elven that I should find friendship upon the way secret and unlooked for. Certainly I looked for no such friendship as you have shown. To have found it turns evil to great good. In this conflict, in this this meeting, we faced disaster. A lesser man, Faramir, wouldn't just have behaved without the exceptional chivalry and kindness and courage and virtue that you have displayed, Faramir of Gondor. A lesser man would have brought ruin upon the last hope of Middle-earth. The fact that we are now able to proceed with our packs a little heavier, with these new staves, ready to go into the teeth of the enemy, ready to take this last desperate chance for victory, a last desperate hope for peace, we can do this thing because you, Faramir of Gondor, have been exceptional in your courage, in your valor, in your honesty, in your sense of justice, and most importantly, in your friendship. This is an enormously touching moment for me. I, I absolutely love how this works out. Um, let me see. Oh, are we having some trouble with, the, uh, with the, the stream here? Just Erica having trouble with the stream. Yeah, I can only recommend a, uh, a refresh here. I hope that it works. Um, good. All right. So let's move on to the actual parting of the ways here as we say farewell for the last time to Faramir of Gondor. Or as Frodo and Sam say farewell for the last time to Faramir of Gondor. They stood under the boughs of the woods again. No noise of the falls could be heard, for a long southward slope lay now between them and the ravine in which the stream flowed. To the west they could see light through the trees, as if the world, they, as if the world came there to a sudden end at a brink, looking out only onto sky. Here is the last parting of our ways," said Faramir. If you take my counsel, you will not turn eastward yet. Go straight on, for thus you will have the cover of the woodland for many miles. On your west is an edge where the land falls into the great vales, sometimes suddenly and sheer, sometimes in long hillsides. Keep near to this edge and the skirts of the forest. In the beginning of your journey you may walk under daylight, I think. The land dreams in a false peace, and for a while all evil is withdrawn. Fare you well while you may. He embraced the hobbits then, after the manner of his people, stooping and placing his hands upon their shoulders and kissing their foreheads. "'Go with the good will of all good men,' he said. "'They bowed to the ground. "'Then he turned, and without looking back, "'he left them and went and went to his two guards "'that stood at a little distance away. "'They marveled to see with what speed "'these green-clad men now moved, "'vanishing almost in the of an, twinkling of an eye. "'The forest where Faramir had stood seemed empty and drear, "'as if a dream had passed. "'This land dreams in a false peace, "'and for a while all evil is withdrawn.' For the moment, right now, in this calm before the storm, this is beautiful. Ithilien is once more beautiful, and Ithilien is once more safe, and Ithilien, Frodo, and Sam can protect you just a little longer. Don't venture back out to the road. Don't venture back to the border between between Ithilien and Mordor proper. No, not yet. Stay within the forests of Ithilien, and you will be safe for a little while, for as long as you may be. Fare you well while you may. And then we get this ritual farewell, the placing of the hands on the shoulder and the kissing on the forehead. This is courtly, right? This is this is the act of a king. This is the act of, of someone of a royal line here. This is the bestowing of love in that courtly chivalric sense, the recognition of great virtue and the offering of equal service. This is Faramir... Uh, in a sense, condescending to Frodo and Sam in that properly medieval sense. But I'm not sure that Faramir would see it as condescending to Frodo and Sam, which makes it all the more authentic, right? The act of condescension. We've talked about true condescension being the mark of a king. Aragorn knows that he is superior to all other men because he is the returning king of of the reunited kingdom of Gondor and Arnor, right? The, The kingdom of south and north. He's coming back to his throne. He knows that he's greater than everyone else. And Faramir doesn't. Faramir doesn't have that that secure place in the hierarchy of the world. He's just a soldier. But in displaying this condescension, he is actually claiming a virtue and a, a chivalry far above his rank. I mean, technically, yes, Frodo and Sam are much lower in rank than Faramir is, but they're also greater in purpose, as we've discussed at some length over the course of the last couple of weeks here on There and Back Again. The forest where Faramir had stood seemed empty and drear, as if a dream had passed. The, narrati- uh, the, the narration there calling back to that notion of the land dreams in a false peace, and suddenly the men are gone, and the dream has passed. Frodo and Sam are once again, even though they're still in Ithilien, even though they're still safe under the trees, even though they're still concealed by the forest and this, this rich and verdant natural world, right? this garden of Ithilien, even though they are still safe, they are now in danger again. They are now facing the enemy unaided. Let me catch up with the chat. Um, oh, interesting. Ryan says, I notice a kind of similarity between Faramir and Galadriel. Both were thought to be potentially treacherous, but turn out to be tremendous allies. Both provide refuge and both give gifts for the journey. They also both refuse the ring. Yeah, there is a pronounced similarity here. <coughs> Excuse me. I suppose in a sense... I've drawn the connection before between Faramir and Eomer, right, that that the meeting between Aragorn and Eomer is not unlike the meeting between Frodo and Faramir, though the meeting between Frodo and Faramir is obviously that much more significant, and they are both, at that point, just, just much more important, right? They are on the actual line of war here between Athelion and Mordor, between Gondor and, and Mordor, but there is a connection between these two things. Amor doesn't have to face the temptation of the ring, but he is still laboring under the obligation of a duty which has been twisted, a duty which has been turned to a kind of insular darkness in much the same way as Faramir has too. We're not now protecting the border of Ithilien, as good Gondorian soldiers should, we're now patrolling Ithilien, looking for seeds of corruption. This is a slightly different thing in its in its texture. But both of these meetings, both of these relationships, both of these men, I think, do exist somewhat in the shadow of Galadriel and and thereby kind of in the shadow of, of Elrond too, right? I think that there's a pattern here that we can kind of distill, I suppose. We can kind of look all the way back to Tom Bombadil, really, right? Or, God, if you want to go even further back... Who are those people who Frodo encounters, who gives them a a, a blessing of friendship and of kindness and of courtesy, unsought and unasked for, and accompanies that with a parting gift? Well, yes. Faramir? Check. Galadriel? Check. Definitely check. Elrond? Check. Tom Bombadil? Check. Check. But Farmer Maggot, too. Remember, Farmer Mag- Frodo is so afraid of meeting with Farmer Maggot because of his his memories of a misspent youth in the Shire, and Farmer Maggot extends to that unasked-for kindness, that unasked-for, that unsought friendship, and then parts with the gift of mushrooms. Now, the gift of mushrooms may seem inconsequential compared to, you know, the the, the file of light that Frodo is going to carry that's going to be so significant in next week's reading, or even the, the staves and the food given to him by Faramir here. But or or the the um the weapons taken from the barrow that Tom Bombadil gives to the the hobbits after they've escaped from the Barrow whites or or been rescued from the Barrow whites, right? These are gifts of a different order, but they are gifts of a similar purpose. Faramir gives food and physical, actual, literal support, right? I can't support you meaningfully, uh, personally, in your, your quest to travel here to Cirith Ungol and, and thence to, to Orodruin in, in Mordor. I can't support, but but I can give you literal support. Here is a staff that will help bear your weight. Galadriel, too, giving gifts of of enchantment and of support, yes, but also of comfort, right? The cloaks and the pins, these are very... Elven gifts, and of course that they are are magical and of of enormously uh, fine works uh, workmanship. Yes, but also of comfort. Like you're going to be more comfortable under an elven cloak than you would otherwise be. That makes sense. And Farmer Maggot, all the way back in the shire, sets the template for this relationship. He extends friendship. He extends support. He extends wise counsel, but understands that there is a limit to what he can do. And then he gives mushrooms comfort and, and food and solace and home to Frodo and the other hobbits. This is a pattern that we have seen all the way through the Lord of the Rings. Let's get to the end of the forest. Actually, let me uh, see if I can catch up here. Um, yeah, uh, Nicky saying, uh, like the forest of Lothlorien. Oh, the chat scrolled a long, long way. I think that uh, Nicky was saying that the forest of Lothlorien is like unto the Garden of Athelion, Yes, also, right, this... Well, Athelion is not preserved, or, or hmm. Ithilien is preserved in the sense that it is still what it was in large part, right? Annun in particular is what it was, but although I guess Henethonun is still a ruin, it, it is still not quite what it was, but the virtue of Gondor is still present here in Athelion Lothlorien, similarly, all that it has ever been, preserved, right? The, the goodness there is still as present as, as it has ever been. Yeah, good. Okay. Gosh, okay, I'm more than half through time. And Actually, we're, we're making good time here. Let's move on to the forest end. As the third stage of their day's march drew on and afternoon waned, the forest opened out and the trees became larger and more scattered. Great ilexes of huge girth stood dark and solemn in wide glades, with here and there among them hoary ash trees and giant oaks just putting out their brown-green buds. About them lay long lawns of green grass dappled with calendine and anemones, white and blue now folded for sleep, and there were acres populous with the leaves of woodland hyacinths. Already their sleek bell-stems were thrusting through the mould. No living creature, beast or bird, was to be seen, but in these open places Gollum grew afraid, and they walked now with caution, flitting from one long shadow to another. Light was fading fast when they came to the forest end. There they sat under an old, gnarled oak that sent its roots twisting like snakes down a steep, crumbling bank— A deep, dim valley lay before them. On its further side the woods gathered again, blue and grey under the sullen evening, and marched on southwards. To the right the mountains of Gondor glowed, remote in the west under a fire-flecked sky. To the left lay darkness, the towering walls of Mordor, and out of that darkness the long valley came, falling steeply in an ever-winding trough toward the Anduin, At its bottom lay a hurrying stream. Frodo could hear its stony voice coming up through the silence, and beside it, on the hither side, a road went winding down like a pale ribbon, down into chill mists that no gleam of sunset touched. There it seemed to Frodo that he described far off, floating as if it were on a shadowy sea, the high, dim tops and broken pinnacles of old towers, forlorn and dark. He turned to Gollum. "'Do you know where we are?' he said. Yes, master. Dangerous places. This is the road from the Tower of the Moon, master, down to the ruined city by the shores of the river, the ruined city. Yes, very nasty place, full of enemies. We shouldn't have taken men's advice. Hobbits have come a long way out of the path, must go east now, away up there. He waved his skinny arm toward the darkling mountains. Then we can't use this road. Oh, no. Cruel people's come this way down from the tower. Frodo looked down onto the road. At any rate, nothing was moving on it now. It appeared lonely and forsaken, running down to the empty ruins in the mist. But there was an evil feeling in the air, as if things might indeed be passing up and down that eyes could not see. Frodo shuddered as he looked again at the distant pinnacles now dwindling into night, and the sound of the water seemed cold and cruel. The voice of Morgolduin, the polluted stream that flowed from the Valley of the Wraiths. This is our glimpse of Asgiliath here, right? We're looking down into the ruined towers of Asgiliath, and we're on the road that ran originally from Asgiliath to Minas Ithil, the, the, that connected the, the guard outpost, the tower of stars up here on the flank of the mountain to the east, and the great city of Asgiliath, greatest city of Middle-earth, at least within the span of, of the modern history of Middle-earth. But it has fallen and the road is now empty, and the wood is now empty, and everything but everything is silent, though not without life. I love that in that first passage we get the uh, the, the giant oaks just putting out their brown-green buds. Uh, there were acres, acres populous with the leaves of woodland hyacinths already. Their sleek bell stems were thrusting through the mold. It's the beginning of March, Spring is coming to Middle-earth. We have no longer, we are no longer burdened by the long, cold, lifeless winter. Spring is coming again here in the Garden of Athelion, and life is returning, albeit slowly, albeit terribly, terribly slowly, though even that is opposed with this, this silence. No living creature, beast, or bird was to be seen, but in these open places Gollum grew afraid and they walked now with caution, flitting from one long shadow to another." Erica says, ah, emptiness and silence scares me. Me too absolutely, me too. Heroes and Bards observing the description of the scenery in this section of the book is just incredibly lovely. This is literally what, this slide is literally, well, okay, there is actually one more that I pulled to specifically because I wanted to talk about the description that we get of this landscape because it is just so good. It's just so beautiful and I was tempted in our reading last week to kind of flit over this from shadow to shadow, from shadow of plot point to shadow of plot point and not spend time here in these long lawns of green grass, these, these, uh, uh, glades, a, a lawn, uh, a woodland glade, a clearing of of open grass uh, in the midst of a forest, um, which even now is making me think of the old forest, right? And and perhaps this is just the recall of Tom Bombadil and a farmer Maggot and of, of of adventures within and out uh, within and without the Shire in earlier simpler times, right? But I'm thinking now of of the Withywindle Valley and I'm thinking now of of the bonfire glade and I'm thinking of the passing through this forest, but here. We have no Tom bombadil to aid us here. The forest itself is silent, and that's actually a crucial distinction. If you go back to the old forest there the the silence of the old forest is taken as a taken as an indication of the forest's consciousness, right We talked a long time ago, gosh, better part of a year ago now, I suppose, uh, nine months ago, something like that, when we started the Fellowship of the Ring, we talked a lot about uh, about the silence of the Old Forest and the, the, the presence of the Old Forest, the agency of the Old Forest, the Old Forest as a gestalt entity, right? This, this singular consciousness that is pushing back against the Hobbits. There's nothing of that sort here in Ithilien. This is the land that has been challenged and fractured. This is, for all that it is still verdant, for all that there is still life here, it is a hollow land. It has no presence beyond the physical or at least no virtuous presence beyond the physical the forest itself has no life in it beyond the passage of the year and the, the 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 growing of new things here it has no awareness it has no sense of itself the road is different the road which you'll notice never never quite finds the sun right the the road this this ribbon that winds down to the west and of course It's impossible to read these passages. It's impossible now at this point, I think, to read any passage in The Lord of the Rings that mentions the west or the east without thinking of uh, the light of Valinor all the way in the west and the shadow of Mordor all the way in the east and kind of opposing these two things. And this is a perfect example of that too. Though even then, we're looking toward the sunset, right? We're looking toward the, the mountains of Gondor, but we're also looking toward the ruin of Osgiliath. We're looking toward this land that has been devastated by the war, the battlefield between Minas Morgul and Minas Tirith this is not safe. This is not, th- these moments of inspiration are, are moments of, of inspiration, of solace, of, of hope are fleeting. We will of course d- address that directly next time. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Access thing, uh, where it says Frodo look down the road. It reminds me of the movie where we see the writer back in the shire and kind of the, the odd camera zoom down the road, spooky, right? That, 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 I just watched Fellowship of the Ring like a few weeks ago again, and I'd forgotten that effect. But the way that we uh, the way that we rack focus there, you know, we we, uh, we shift the focal point of the camera as we physically move the camera. So it either flattens the depth of field or wildly extends the depth of field or, or not just the depth of field, but I suppose the illusion of depth within within the, the, the within the camera itself. It's a really brilliant effect, right? And the darkening of the forest path as, as the Black Rider is coming, gorgeously, gorgeously done. But yes, it does feel very similar here. That's 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 really good. Um, Morgulduin, I just wanted to call out uh, here. Frodo shuddered as he looked again at the distant pinnacles now dwindling into night and the sound of the water seemed cold and cruel. You'll notice that the voice of the stream, um, Frodo could hear its stony voice coming up through the silence, right? So he's hearing the voice of the river and then there is the shift. Then there is the darkness. He's looking, at, he's looking into the West with, with a certain kind of hope, right? To the right, the mountains of Gondor glowed, remote in the West under a fire-flecked sky. All good things, like the West, the light, the fire, all, even the sky, all good things. Then to the left lay darkness, the towering walls of Mordor. And out of that, the valley comes and the stony voice of the river. And then here at the end, After Gollum's words, Frodo looked down onto the road. At this rate, nothing was, at any rate, nothing was moving on it. now. It appeared lonely and forsaken, running down to empty ruins in the mist. But there was an evil feeling in the air as if things might indeed be passing up and down that eyes could not see. Frodo shuddered as he looked again at the distant pinnacles now dwindling into night, right? This is no longer hopeful. He's looking west now. And those mountains are no longer glowing under a fireflecked sky. Now they are descending into night too. The sound of the water seemed cold and cruel. The voice of Morg- Morgul the polluted stream that flowed from the Valley of the Wraiths. Here again, we get another, another alternate title for the Morgul Vale. The Valley of the Living Dead, the Valley of Bad Sorcery, of Evil Sorcery, and the Valley of the Wraiths too, right? Like, okay, we've got a few names for this place. Now, Morgulduin, just simply, you know, the, the, the river of, of evil sorcery, right? Morgul? Duin, right? We're reminded of of the river Anduin that we've been tracking south from Lothlorien, right? Anduin simply means the Duin there means river and the An just simply means great, right? It is the great river. This is the evil river, the the, the river of evil sorcery that descends from the Morgul Vale. Um, let me see here. Uh, yeah, I believe, uh, yes, Angela's pointing out that Fellowship is finally on Netflix. Are all three on Netflix or just Fellowship? I'm not entirely sure. I've got my, uh, which I think in fact well, if I didn't have a slide-up, you could probably see them on the shelf behind me. I've got my very precious and treasured extended edition Blu-ray, you know, all of the 25-disc set or however many discs that it is, but I love that very, very much. Just Fellowship, Nikki says. That's crazy. Why is Just Fellowship available on Netflix? Sort it out, Netflix. What are you doing? Anyway, it's a few months yet before we start talking about the movies in any depth, though I cannot wait for that. Let's keep moving onward. Beneath the shadow of the FL Duath. He quickened his pace and they followed him wearily. Soon they began to climb up onto a great hogback of land. For the most part, it was covered with a thick growth of gorse and whortleberry and low, tough thorns, though here and there clearings opened, the scars of recent fires. The gorse bushes became more frequent as they got nearer the top. Very old and tall they were, gaunt and leggy below, but thick above, and already putting out yellow flowers that glimmered in the gloom and gave a faint, sweet scent. So tall were the spiny thickets that the hobbits could walk upright under them, passing through long, dry aisles carpeted with a deep, prickly mould. On the further edge of this broad hillback, they stayed their march and crawled for hiding underneath a tangled knot of thorns. Their twisted boughs, stooping to the ground, were overridden by a clambering maze of old briars. Deep inside there was a hollow hall, raftered with dead branch and bramble and roofed with the first leaves and shoots of spring. There they lay for a while, too tired yet to eat, and peering out through the holes in the covert, they watched for the slow growth of day. But no day came, only a dead, brown twilight. In the east, there was a dull red glare under the lowering cloud. It was not the red of dawn across the tumbled lands between the mountains of the Efr-duath frowned at them, black and shapeless below where night lay thick and did not pass away above with jagged tops and edges outlined hard and menacing against the fiery glow, away to their right. A great shoulder of the mountain stood out, dark and black amid the shadows thrusting westward. Which way do we go from here? asked Frodo. Is that the opening of- of the Morgul valley away over there beyond that black mass? Do we need to think about it yet, said Sam? Surely we're not going to move any more today, if day it is. Perhaps not, perhaps not, said Gollum. But we must go soon to the crossroads. Yes, to the crossroads. That's the way over there. Yes, master. I pulled this slide because I think it is utterly beautiful. Um, and because we get the first, I mean, okay, the plot reason for pulling this slide. Hey, we get the first hint of the darkness that is, that is about to spill forth from the bounds of the Efelduath, the, the, the outer fence of shadow, as the Sindarin name has it, uh, around Mordor at this point. We're going to, uh, we're going to get the spilling forth of darkness and the red sky above Mordor here. But I also pulled this because... This passage weirdly reminds me of my childhood. I don't know. Do you have gorse here in the United States? Is that a thing that has been transplanted? I can't imagine why you would, because it is not a terribly functional plant. I'll I'll put it that way. But where I grew up in the northeast of Scotland, there was... Uh, huge amounts of gorse going out into the countryside i have had this experience in my life and and not just as a small child but even as a young man i've had this experience of 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 skirting these immense ancient gorse bushes that are are you know suspended maybe 6 feet in the air with these leggy old growths of of gnarled branch you know and then you get this this crown of of violent green spikes the gorse bushes are are nasty things but you get these beautiful little yellow flowers in the springtime. Again, another indication that it is springtime here in Athelion, so far fou- uh, so far south of the Shire. You get these little uh, little yellow flowers with this faint, sweet scent that the professor describes here in this passage. Specifically, the scent of gorse is coconut. It's really weird. I, I don't know why. I don't know what 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 evolutionary quirk has led to gorse in northern Europe smelling like coconut, but smell like coconut it does, and that to this day is the scent of like early spring to me that is that is such a vivid recollection that I have of, of my youth in in Scotland and this notion of of crawling beneath the the boughs and branches of this this gnarled old thorny bush and finding this this hole within you know the the bare the bare earth beneath where, where nothing grows because there's no light to come down here and the, the gorse is leaching all of the nutrients out of it and it's encloaked and enshrouded in and brambles too this this is yeah, very familiar to me and and, and very, very evocative and very powerful. Yeah. Um, oh, Becca confirms, yes, we have gorse in places. I have never seen I've never seen gorse in the United States. Um, Nikki says, I've never seen gorse before in Texas. Can you eat the flour? I've never eaten the flour of gorse. I think that you maybe. I'm, I'm just now I'm having this this dim associative memory of, of people brewing like gorse flour tea. Um, So I I think that, that, yeah, it it probably has maybe even some, you know, ancient medicinal application, but that is... I, I am a I'm a poor gardener. I'm afraid no Sam Gamgee am I in a number of different ways. In fact, but yes, yes, Jackie's uh, Jackie's skeptical. But I, I, I'm reading from your your uh, your implied interrobang there at the end of your your sentence there, uh, the end of your one word phrase, Jackie, that you are skeptical about it smelling like coconut. I promise you, if you ever have the opportunity, it's enormously striking. Yeah, Ryan saying that he's never seen it on the on the East Coast. That's crazy. Yeah, wow. Um, Wikipedia, thank you, Seastar. Wikipedia says that you can, in fact, eat the flower. How fascinating! I never have, to the best of my knowledge. So, hey, maybe someday, maybe someday, when I return to Scotland, I will, uh, I will seek out gorse flowers and uh, and do some of that. Yes, uh, Erica asking in the east, there was a dull red glare under the lowering of the cloud. It was not the red of dawn. What is it causing the red glare? Then, um, well, literally. It is Orodruin, it is Mount Doom, it is the fiery volcano at the heart of Mordor, arguably, potentially, at least the only volcano in all of Middle-earth. As I mentioned last time, there is like this ongoing, like, very nerdy conversation that I've seen glimpses of online about whether or not Mount Doom is the only volcano in Middle-earth, and it may well be. Um, but yes, it is, and Mount Doom is once more rousing itself, so literally, that is what is causing the red glow, more metaphorically the shadow is now extending itself and this is the shadow this is the 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 dark fire of the Balrog, right? We talked back when we were discussing, you know, the confrontation on the Bridge of khazad between Gandalf and the Balrog, the uses of fire in The Lord of the Rings and that there is a, a pure fire, right? Gandalf describes himself as the wielder of the secret flame, right? He is, he is holding fire. He is wielding fire in that battle against the Balrog, but he also describes the Balrog as flame of Udun, right? This is the Balrog wreathed in flame and smoke. There is a dark fire that is associated with Sauron and with, with going back, you know, Morgoth with, with Melkor, with The Balrogs with with ancient evil in Middle Earth, but there's also this pure cleansing fire, which I think we're supposed to get a little hint of here. Uh, for the most part, it was covered in a thick growth of gorse and whortleberry and low, tough thorns. Though here, in their clearings, opened the scars of recent fires. Right, I take that to be natural, you know, wildfires that have that have happened here, that that are a part of the development and the evolution, and in fact, the the life of the living landscape. That's that's all a part of the. The the breathing right the inhalation and exhalation of Ithilien as as a garden as a as a uh, as a place of of healthy life here, as opposed again to the bonfire glade back in the old forest. But I, I, maybe I am reading more into that connection than other people would. Yeah, good. Okay. Um. Oh, this is interesting. Durin's bane saying uh, the lonely mountain was likely once a volcano. I'm just not trying to think if there's any reference to that in certainly nothing in The Hobbit, right? Maybe is there reference to that in is it the unfinished tale? No, no. Okay, I forget. Is it in the Quest of Erebor? I forget exactly where we get maybe some reference. To that I'll, I'll need to look into that. I, I have talked about it a couple of times. Oh, no reference says Durin's Bane, but contextually, yeah, that 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 may well be fair. That may well be uh, may well be true. I'll need to. Uh... I need to delve into this. Now, now I'm fascinated by it. As I say, I've brushed up against this conversation in a couple of places out there on the internet. Now I'm going to have to delve in and see if I can come to a, a final conclusion. So stay tuned for that as we approach Mount Doom. Okay, let's keep uh, moving on here now that I only have a little while left to, uh, to finish this up. Because we absolutely have to talk about Sam's dream. The red glare over Mordor died away. The twilight deepened as great vapours rose in the east and crawled above them. Frodo and Sam took a little food and then lay down, but Gollum was restless. He would not eat any of their food, but he drank a little water and then crawled about under the bushes, sniffing and muttering. Then suddenly he disappeared. "'Off hunting, I suppose,' said Sam and yawned. It was his turn to sleep first, and he was soon deep in a dream." He thought he was back in the bagand garden looking for something, but he had a heavy pack on his back, which made him stoop. It all seemed very weedy and rank somehow, and thorns and bracken were invading the beds down near the bottom hedge. A job of work for me, I can see, but I'm so tired. He kept on saying presently he remembered what he was looking for. My pipe, he said, and with that he woke up, silly he said to himself as he opened his eyes and wondered why he was what he was uh, excuse me, wondered why he was lying down under the hedge. It's in your pack all the time. Then he realized, first, that the pipe might be in his pack, but that he had no leaf. And next, that he was hundreds of miles from Bag End. He sat up. It seemed to be almost dark. Why had his master let him sleep on out of turn right on till evening? Haven't you had no sleep, Master Frodo, he said? What's the time? Seems to be getting late. No, it isn't, said Frodo. But the day is getting darker instead of lighter. Darker and darker. As far as I can tell, it isn't midday yet. You've only slept for about three hours. I wonder what's up, said Sam. Is there a storm coming? If so, it's going to be the worst that there ever was. We shall wish we were down in a deep hole, not just stuck under a hedge. He listened. What's that? Thunder or drums or what is it? I wish that we had more of Sam's dream. I wish that we had just more time with it. I wish that we had a greater exploration of what Sam is doing right here. Because at first blush, of course, we have a rich tradition of dreaming about Bag End in the works of Professor Tolkien, right? Bilbo did it all the time, thinking about Bag End, dreaming about Bag End, wishing he was back home, wishing that he had his kettle singing and his skillet of bacon and his seed cakes in the oven, right? Wishing that that he had, that he had access once more to the comfort and the ease of his, the safety, the security of his former life. Sam is dreaming about Bag End, but he is not dreaming about a safe world. He's also, interestingly, not quite dreaming about a dangerous world either, except in the terms of his garden. He's dreaming about a garden that has been invaded, that has kind of fallen to corruption. It all seemed very weedy and rank somehow, and thorns and bracken were invading the beds down near the bottom hedge. The garden is being overtaken. The garden is being overthrown. We have this sense of creeping corruption, of creeping darkness, of something wild, not in the Not in the healthy, positive east of the Misty Mountains, capital W, wild sense, right? This is not the the wilderness of Beorn. This is the wilderness of Mirkwood, or even here encroaching into the Garden of Athelion, encroaching upon the the lands that that formerly were were held by the Gondorians. This is a a creeping, cold corruption. This is. A twisted thing, right? Not just not just plants invading, not just a riot of wildflowers invading his lawn here at Bag End, but thorns and bracken invading the beds, right? Invading the the cultivated flower beds that he himself has preserved down near the bottom hedge. A job of work for me, I can see, but I'm so tired. He kept on saying, and then remembering his pipe, remembering this token of comfort, right. Think of of Bilbo after he's separated from the dwarves, after they've been taken down, down to Goblin Town, and he has that moment of thinking, I'm just going to light my pipe, it's going to be great, and he can't, and then he realizes, ah, it's actually very good that I didn't light my pipe, because if I had lit my pipe right then at that moment, I would have been caught for sure, that would have been disastrous. Here, Sam having that similar experience here, no, I've got my pipe, but I've got no leaf, he's got no, no tobacco to smoke at this point, and this encroaching darkness, right? He's only slept three hours. It's it's only midday. It isn't midday yet, as Frodo says. The day is getting darker instead of lighter. Darker and darker. I wonder what's up. Said Sam. Is there a storm coming? Calling back to what Faramir was just saying, right? This sense that the that when they that when they left Faramir the day before, that the world was holding its breath. Now the storm is breaking. Now this is, it's all coming on. If so, it's going to be the worst that there ever was. We shall wish we were down in a deep hole, not just stuck under a hedge. The deep hole too evocative. There are two hobbits, of course, specifically of comfort and security we will wish that we were in a nice deep hole maybe with some kind of second breakfast maybe with a kettle boiling happily on the stove maybe with a skillet of bacon frying up just nicely just the way that we like it we would wish for comfort and safety and security sam echoing his own dream there as we move forward oh boy angela his pipe is almost like a portkey to home for him what a beautiful thought what a beautiful thought yes lovely lovely good Excellent, excellent. And Nikki's saying it could be him combining what he knows with his current experiences, or it could be more along the lines of foreshadowing, right? Also that, also, we've kind of addressed this in passing a few times, and I don't want to get too deep into the spoilers, but there is a shadow on the Shire now, right? We, we know this textually because of some... Fears and some some suppositions that we've had some tensions going all the way back to Rivendell, in fact. But certainly Sam's glimpse in the mirror of Galadriel. Yes, there is now a shadow on the Shire too. It is a shadow of a different sort. It seems unlikely, in fact, that thorns and bracken would be invading the the lower garden beds at Bag End, uh, the lower flower beds at Bag End. But there is a darkness now shrouding the Shire, in much the same way as the darkness is about to spill forth here from uh, from Mordor. And of course this darkness symbolically the, we've we've used the darkness consistently going all the way back to the hobbit right the darkness the shadow like this this fell and malevolent influence that spreads forth across the land that corrupts we saw this first and most powerfully in mirkwood right the corruption of the necromancer at dol door has turned the forest literally black it is it is it has fallen under the shadow and you'll remember that we get that description remember of of, of uh, bilbo and the dwarves coming through the forest gate into mirkwood there and then no longer seeing the sun because the boughs are so tight and heavy above their heads. They transit into darkness. Now we're getting another version of that, but this is a Lord of the Rings version of that. It's much less like entering fairy and much more like, well, much more like fairy exploding out of Mordor, dark fairy exploding out of Mordor to cover the face of the earth. This This is much more powerful. Okay. Three more slides, fifteen minutes. Here we go. Eric is saying, "Anyone else think a hobbit hug would be like the most wonderful thing ever? Like hugging a kid? Better, they're just so homely." I have honestly never thought of hugging a hobbit, but yep, yep. It, it, yes, I, I can definitely see that. Yeah, just, just like a, a, a good Hogget, a, a good hobbit, snug a hug. It is. I, I inadvertently contracted it to that, but. Yeah, I, I can imagine that would be very, very lovely. Hobbits would smell good too, right? Like, like hobbits would smell like, like earthy in a really good way. Hobbits would smell, you know. Like I've often thought, because I suppose my prior point of comparison for this are the Ewoks from Return of the Jedi, and I've always thought, and maybe it's just something about the the, the puppet work in Return of the Jedi. I've always thought that hob uh, that that Ewoks probably smell very bad, right? That that all of that fur in a in a dank forest, like Ewoks probably don't smell great. Like I don't. Really suppose that Chewbacca smells great either, honestly. But hobbits, I'm certain, smell fantastic. That that aroma of like of like good old pipe smoke and like fine food and and yeah yeah. And we know how they love their baths too. So personal hygiene probably pretty good for hobbits. All right, let's keep pushing on. The afternoon, as Sam supposed it must be called, wore on. Looking out from the covert, he could see only a dun, shadowless world fading slowly into a featureless, colorless gloom. It felt stifling, but not warm. Frodo slept on quietly, turning and tossing and sometimes murmuring. Twice Sam thought he heard him speaking Gandalf's name. The time seemed to drag interminably. Suddenly Sam heard a hiss behind him and there was Gollum on all fours, peering at them with gleaming eyes. "'Wake up! Wake up! Wake up, sleepies!' he whispered. "'Wake up! No time to lose! We must go! Yes, we must go at once! No time to lose!' Sam stared at him suspiciously. He seemed frightened or excited. "'Go now!' What's your little game? It isn't time yet. It can't be tea time even. At least way he's not in decent places where there is a tea time. Silly, hissed Gollum. We're not in decent places. Time's running short. Yes, running fast. No time to lose. We must go. Wake up, master, wake up. He clawed at Frodo and Frodo, startled out of sleep, sat up suddenly and seized him by the arm. Gollum tore himself loose and backed away. They mustn't be silly, he hissed. We must go. No time to lose. And nothing more could they get out of him. Where he had been and what he thought uh, what he thought was brewing to make him in such a hurry he would not say. Sam was filled with deep suspicion and showed it, but Frodo gave no sign of what was passing in his mind. He sighed, hoisted his pack, and prepared to go out into the ever-gathering darkness. Very stealthily, Gollum led them down the hillside, keeping under cover wherever it was possible and running, almost bent to the ground across any open space, but the light was now so dim that even a keen-eyed beast of the wild could scarcely have seen the hobbits, hooded in their grey cloaks, nor heard them walking as warily as the little people can. Without the crack of a twig or the rustle of a leaf, they passed and vanished. One of the most interesting things about this, I think, is how completely we have now transitioned into Sam's POV. We slip into Sam's POV during our time, well, within captivity, within cap- uh, while we are being held captive by Faramir, particularly when we're at Henneth and we kind of slip into Sam's POV periodically, but now we're pretty consistently in Sam's POV and Frodo's POV is more distant from us than it has ever been. Uh, we get this, um, Sam was filled with deep suspicion and showed it, but Frodo gave no sign of what was passing in his mind. And we, the readers, get no sign of what is passing in his mind, right? We are in Sam's POV now because Frodo is descending still, still deeper and, and more swiftly beneath the shadow. Um... Yes. Good. Good. Wow, well, we have that. <laughs> we're comparing heights here. This is, uh, oh, okay. Jackie is pointing out the Redwood forest smells pretty amazing where Return of the Jedi was shot. Okay. That, 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 absolutely fair. Um, I, I absolutely stand corrected and you're right. You know, I, I think maybe it's not as, it's not as damp or as dank as I suspect it is. I think I'm thinking of like the open shots that we get of the forest and it's actually pretty spectacular, but yes, yes. Good. Um, C Star says, I'm short, they not Hobbit short, so hugging a Hobbit might be physically more comfortable for me than hugging most humans. Uh, yeah, we're, we're just comparing heights. Uh, comparing. <laughs> Ryan says that he's six foot, I guess I'm Numenorean. Yeah, I'm six foot four, so yes, I, I am absolutely you know, appropriate to be the heir of, of Elendil the Tall. Elendil the Tall, of course, the father of Isildur, direct ancestor of, of Aragorn. Aragorn who is six foot, Aragorn also six feet four inches, I think, canonically. Boromir, I believe, six feet Six inches. Elendil, Elendil the tall, over seven feet, like I think seven foot two. You know, the men of Numenorian were of, of great stature, great and forbidding stature, yes. So, okay, we've observed that we're in Sam's POV here. we have observed that, that we've observed that that Gollum is urging us ever onward. So let us be urged ever onward. I wanted to pull, I mentioned earlier that there were two slides that I really wanted to pull, one about the gorse and, and this one. This is the second slide that that feels a little bit as though it's just more landscape detail, but is, I think, far more significant than that. And then we're gonna close out with the last slide where we talk about the Fallen King. For about an hour they went on silently in single file, oppressed by the gloom and by the absolute stillness of the land, broken only now and again by the faint rumbling as of thunder far away or drumbeats in some hollow of the hills. Down from their hiding place they went, and then turning south they steered as straight a course as Gollum could find along, across a long broken slope that leaned up toward the mountains presently not far ahead looming up like a black wall they saw a belt of trees as they drew nearer they became aware that these were of vast size very ancient it seemed and still towering high though their tops were gaunt and broken as if tempest and lightning blast had swept across them but it had failed to kill them or to shake their fathomless roots the crossroads yes whispered gollum the first words that had been spoken since they left their hiding place we must go that way turning eastward now he led them up the slope and then suddenly there it was before them the southward road, winding its way about the outer feet of the mountains until presently it plunged into the great ring of trees. This is the only way, whispered Gollum. No paths beyond the road, no paths. We must go to the crossroads, but make haste, be silent. This is the border of Athelion. This is the border of. Gondor this is the border of the civilized world because this friends is the functional border of Mordor this southern road here this acts as as the dividing line between the civil and the wild the the dark wild i suppose the savage land that that uh, is Mordor But I wanted to draw a specific reference to these trees and the degree to which these trees are representative of, well, Gondor specifically, right? It's it's no surprise that these trees are, are flanking the road here, that the road plunges into them, as it were, but also of strength in general, in, in terms of, of, of the Lord of the Rings. Presently not far ahead, looming up like a black wall, they saw a belt of trees. As they drew nearer, they became aware that these were of vast size, very ancient, it seemed, and still towering high, though their tops were gaunt and broken as if tempest and lightning blast had swept across them, but had failed to kill them or to shake their fathomless roots because of the depth of their roots, they have endured. They have continued to draw strength while they are assaulted. They have drawn strength, of course, not from the air, not from each other, but from the land itself. They are connected to the soil of Ithilien, and they have thus endured. And there's something poetic, something something beautiful there. Yes, yes. Border of Mordor as C Star calls out here. Yes. A lot of rolled Rs in that. Absolutely. Yeah, Nikki says the good holds on in the trees though the forces of evil have assailed them. They, as Nikki says, are a liminal space. That's beautiful. Megan asks are ents and aren't specific to Fangorn only? Um y- Well, okay. No, nominally no. Nominally ants were everywhere right we can presume that that any significant forest would have had ants at some point we know that there are no ants now in the old forest to the east of the shire and it's possible that there aren't any ants in Ithilien because you'll remember that that when the Entwives left, they crossed the Anduin, right? That is what separated the ants from the Entwives initially. The Entwives crossed the Anduin and went out into what now are the Brownlands, right? What are the, the the desolate wastelands to the east of the Anduin and created their great gardens? Was the Garden of Ithilien created by Entwives? Maybe, maybe. Well, or if not created, then then nurtured by Entwives? maybe but the antwives have all gone now or have become treeish. There are, I am pretty confident in saying by implication, no active ants in Ithilien anymore, right? I I don't think that this is a that this is a shepherded forest anymore. But once, arguably, yeah, I'm interested in this idea of the antwives creating Ithilien. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay. So now, (laughs) (laughs) Angela calling drink because I said the word liminal. I don't think that counts if I'm reading a comment from the chat, though, does it? You can't do the drinking game because of that. You guys could just trigger as many drinks as you like. That that would be, wow, terrible and ruinous. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Good, okay. All right, let's get to our last slide. And hey, you guys, we could probably spend an hour on this slide alone, but we're going to spend a little while on it. So we'll see what we can do here. This is the very end of, of, uh, of chapter seven of book four of The Lord of the Rings. As furtively as scouts within the encampment of their enemies, they crept down onto the road and stole along its westward edge under the stony bank, gray as the stones themselves and soft-footed as hunting cats. At length they reached the trees, and found that they stood in a great roofless ring, open in the middle to a sombre sky, and the spaces between their immense balls was like to the great dark arches of some ruined hall. In the very centre, four ways met. Behind them lay the road to the Morannon. Before them it ran out again on its long journey south. To their right, the road from old Osgiliath came climbing up and crossing, passed out eastward into darkness, the fourth way, the road they were to take. Standing there for a moment, filled with dread, Frodo became aware that a light was shining. He saw it glowing on Sam's face beside him. Turning toward it, he saw, beyond an arch of boughs, the road to Asgiliath running almost as straight as a stretched ribbon, down, down into the west. There, far away, beyond sad Gondor, now overwhelmed in shade, the sun was sinking, finding at last the hem of the great slow-rolling pole of cloud and falling in an ominous fire toward the yet unsullied sea. The brief glow fell upon a huge sitting figure, still and solemn as the great stone kings of Argonoth. The years had gnawed it, and violent hands had maimed it. Its head was gone, and in its place was set in mockery a round, rough-hewn stone, rudely painted by savage hands in the likeness of a grinning face, with one large red eye in the midst of its forehead. Upon its knees, and mighty chair, and all about the pedestal, were idle scrawls mixed with the foul symbols that the maggot folk of Mordor used. Suddenly, caught by the level beams, Frodo saw the old king's head. It was lying, rolled away by the roadside. Look, Sam! He cried, startled into speech. Look, the king has got a crown again! The eyes were hollow and the carven beard was broken, but about the high stern forehead there was a coronal of silver and gold. A trailing plant with flowers like small white stars had bound itself across the brows as if in reverence for the fallen king, and in the crevices of his stony hair, yellow stonecrop gleamed. "'They cannot conquer forever,' said Frodo. And then, suddenly, the brief glimpse was gone. The sun dipped and vanished, and as if at the shuttering of a lamp, black night fell. Gee whiz, you stop this passage two sentences early, and it's really hopeful. You conclude this passage just a little early. You conclude this passage with, "'They cannot conquer forever,' said Frodo, and you feel really good about their journey into Mordor at this point.'" But the narrative doesn't rest. The narrative doesn't cease. The narrative doesn't give us this moment of solace. The narrative gives us this hope only to cruelly take it away, to extinguish it. And then suddenly the brief glimpse was gone. The sun dipped and vanished. And as, as, uh, excuse me, and as if at the shuttering of a lamp, black night fell. Gosh, there's so much here. There's so much here. So first of all, this, this cathedral ring of ancient trees protecting, marking the crossroads itself, right? These two roads, the southward road running from the Moran down into the depths of the south and from Azgiliath running up to Minas Ithil as it was when it was built, now Minas Morgul, this road that has been corrupted and... St- Still, the crossroads stands here, protected by these ancient trees that have been challenged, that have been assaulted, that have been torn at by by the lightning and the storm, but still endure their roots so deep that they cannot yet be completely vanquished. Then, this shining light, and of course, of course, The light of the West, capital W, West, the light of the sun shining out of the West. Of course, Frodo should see it first on Sam's face. He saw it glowing on Sam's face beside him, turning toward it then, implying that actually he's he's looking at Sam and he sees the light for the first time that day and turns to see the actual light. But of course, it's reflected in Sam. Hey, you guys, the light of the West is literally reflected in Sam just in case that's escaped our attention so far. It's such a powerful moment. And, of course, we're, we're immediately thinking in terms of, of the most mythic underpinnings of Middle-earth, of, Middle of, of Arda here. We're thinking of the West. We're thinking of the Undying Lands. We're thinking of Home, We're thinking of Valinor. Even we're thinking of the straight road, right? Um, uh, where are we? Yeah. The, the, Turning toward it, he saw beyond an arch of bounds, the road to Azgiliath running almost as straight as a stretched ribbon, down, down into the West, Right the straight road is metaphorically the path that you now take to valinor now that valinor is no longer within the physical bound of arda following the 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 disaster at at, at, uh, the disaster of of the Numenorean assault on Valinor, led by Arpharazon, and the the cracking of the world, right? The sinking of Numenor. Now Valinor is not really in the world at all. To get there, you have to transit into Faerie. You take the straight path, and here we see this straight road running into the west, running into Asgiliath. There, far away, beyond sad Gondor, now overwhelmed in shade, the sun was sinking, finding at last the hem of the great slow-rolling pall of Cloud, and falling in an ominous fire toward the yet unsung Sea. An ominous fire, right? This is still not a great moment of hope, but there is light and the sea is unsullied and the West still endures. The West still stands. And in this light, what is revealed to us? But this king, the fallen king, this this statue here set to mark the crossroads, some unremembered king of Gondor. And to the best of of my knowledge and recollection, we don't actually know who this king is. We don't know who this king, uh, who this statue is supposed to represent, but it doesn't matter because we get two pivotal details here, one of which the, the narration explicitly draws our attention to, and one of which is left by inference, right? So the statue has been decapitated. The statue has been been marred and, and scrawled upon by the maggots, uh, the maggot folk of Mordor, right? It has been defiled. It has been desecrated and it has been decapitated. The head has been taken from the statue and in its place was set in mockery around rough-hewn stone, rudely painted by savage hands in the likeness of a grinning face with one large red eye in the midst of its forehead this is well mockery is exactly the word we've seen precious little in the way of artistry by the folk of mordor do they create art do they cre- do they do they craft beyond the weapons of war Well, this is the craft of the maggot folk of Mordor, right? This is the craft of the wild man and the orcs who populate Mordor. And it is mockery. It is mockery twice over. It is mockery in the sense that they are intending to mock the original statue. And it is a mockery of the act of creation itself. What have they done? Well, they decapitated it and just put like a crappy head on top, just like a, a, a cheap, terrible knockoff head on top. Ah, so clever, so good, because evil cannot create. Art cannot spring forth from evil. They lack that, that reflective, prismatic quality that the virtuous hold, right? They, they cannot sub-create because they are cut off from the light of original creation. So that's the first beat. And then, we get the king and his crown, that the king's head has fallen. The eyes were hollow and the carven beard was broken, but around the high stern forehead there was a coronal of silver and gold. A trailing plant with flowers like small white stars had bound itself across the brows as if in reverence for the fallen king. And in the crevices of his stony hair, yellowstone crop gleamed. They cannot conquer forever, said Frodo. And Frodo is, in a sense, right, but he's incompletely right. He's, he's not quite getting the message, Right. Yes, this this head has been taken down, the statue has been desecrated, but the natural world has has risen up in reverence. It has risen up to honor the head of this fallen king, but that's not all. The natural world can honor the head of the fallen king, can encircle the brow of the fallen king, only because the king's head has fallen. These flowers wouldn't be able to, presumably... Encircle the entire statue, right? They wouldn't be able to dominate the entire statue. And even if they could dominate the statue, that is exactly what they would do, right? You can't have a single line of a vine climbing up the statue and encircling the brow. That just wouldn't wouldn't feel natural. That 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 wouldn't be true and authentic. It is only in the ruination of the statue that the king can get this new circlet of flowers, that 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 virtue and hope can still stand, can still endure even here on the borders of Mordor. We are prisms, says Becca Eller. We have the power to project the divine into the world. Thank you, Tolkien and Porter. Yes, yes, absolutely. The crownless again shall be king, says Erica. Yeah, is this supposed to be foreshadowing or a hint toward Aragorn or is it, uh, is it of just a general hope that good will prevail? No, no, I think, you're, I think you're absolutely on the money there, Erica. I think that, yes, the restoration of the crown right to the fallen king who is the fallen king well in a sense the king is the fallen king right isildur i suppose was the fallen king right but the line of isildur has endured and now the crown will be restored the the circlet will be restored that's crucially important yeah i think we are getting some some foreshadowing here too good good I love seeing that you guys are uh, are uh <laughs> oh Nikki also quoting the Crownless again should be king. Good, excellent. I love seeing that you guys are are moved by by this. This is this is what it is. This is the point, you guys. This is the, one of those moments where Professor Tolkien's work, and not the last that we're gonna discuss even within the frame of this book. Next week is a knockout, and then the week after, the choices of Master Samwise, the last chapter of book four just buckle up. We've got a lot of really powerful stuff to cover. But this, for me, is one of the most striking and powerful symbols of hope and of of catastrophe and of rebellion and of indefatigability and of, of dauntlessness that we'll get in the entire book. I, I just love this. And I love that Frodo recognizes it. And then the hammer blow, right? Then the sucker punch. Oh, in this moment, they cannot conquer forever! Exclamation point said, Frodo! And then suddenly the brief glimpse was gone. The sun dipped and vanished, and as if at the shuttering of a lamp, black night fell. Next week, we move onward, ever, ever onward, to chapters eight and nine of book four, The Stairs of Kerith Ungle and Shelob's Lair. That will be at 10 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, February the 15th. That will be next week's session. Let me take, uh, I'm a little after time, let me take a quick glance at the uh, questions bucket here. Is diminishment, asks Mitchell Radspinner. Is diminishment inherently in Tolkien's works a bad thing? I feel like there are all sorts of negative connotations with the word. Um, yeah, as as Joseph has has commented on this question here in the Crowdcast chat interface, my sense is that it isn't good or bad. It just is. Yeah, the diminishment, the fall of man, and by extension, the fall of elves, the fall of magic in the world, the the, the diminishment and diminution of magic in the world, these are these are. Taken as red for, for Tolkien's perspective on his Legendarium, at least in its initial conception, things diminish. In that, by the way, Tolkien is absolutely echoing like the medieval tradition. The, the medieval tradition, it is not until the Renaissance that we get this incredibly hubristic sense of our place in the world, right? It is the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, and then it falls fallow for, you know, a couple of centuries, but it is absolutely evident again in the modern world. In these periods, we not only believe that tomorrow will be better than today, but that we ourselves, the greatest man that the world has ever produced, the greatest people that have ever graced the face of this jeweled earth, that we are going to have an active role in making the world better. That is an entirely modern phenomenon, and I'm kind of co-opting Tolkien's frame there for for the meaning of the word modern because yeah back to the back to the renaissance if you go back to the medieval period even the pre-medieval period if you go back to classical antiquity you find consistently accounts of a vanished golden age the world used to be great and now it sucks like that sense of diminishment the sense that the 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 best the world had to offer was in the past is God, ubiquitous all across the world, certainly throughout, you know, classical history and Western European history up until the Renaissance. That's the first point at which people begin to think, ah, but maybe we could make it better. Maybe tomorrow could be better than today. And as I say, that's a, a foundational principle for the development of, of, gosh, modern political discourse, you know, modern, modern, our, our modern sensibility. And, and for what it's worth, that is a belief with which I completely agree. That That is a, a belief that I hold myself very dearly, not in the sense that I believe that that the world will inevitably get better, but I believe that the possibility is there and that is a thing worth fighting for. So that's that's very much where I come from, like, like politically and philosophically and idealistically. So I'm, I'm not generally given to the idea of the vanished golden age and the inevitable fall of man, the fall of culture, the fall of civilization, the, the diminishment of those things. But even then, Mitchell, to kind of address your question more directly, diminishment, no, not necessarily a bad thing. Certainly not an evil thing, right? It is not the case that that men diminish in the fourth age. The fourth age of Tolkien's legendarium, everything from basically the end of this book up to the modern day. Right, <laughs> uh, in the fourth age, men diminish not because of the triumph of evil, but just because that's what happens. That is the path of history. Is is this this slow decline into mundanity? That's certainly how Tolkien saw the world and uh, how he represented that in the. Um, in the um in, in the frame of his legendarium. Angela saying the fall of Rome proved that the diminishment is inevitable to the medieval people. Absolutely, right? The medieval people looked back on this series of golden ages, right? And of course, the 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 push of Christianity in the late Roman, early medieval periods kind of emphasized that because within Christian theology, we are. All the product of, of of literally a fallen world, right not a long, slow decline, but the casting out the exile from the garden right that that is the world in which we live, where we are stranded now, bereft of that that hope and solace and comfort that was given to us freely in the garden. So the combination of looking back at, at, at the classical world, looking back at ancient Rome, looking back at ancient Greece, looking back at the at, at Persia and at Egypt and at all the great classical civilizations, looking back at those things and also the theological understanding that the world sucks now because we are terrible. Yeah, that it's understandable why, why medieval folk felt the way that they, that they felt. Yes, um, let me see here. As I continue scrolling. Okay. Joseph asks, the whole Faramiri section feels very reminiscent of the Lorian. Oh, oh, (laughs) Faramiri section. I was trying to figure out what that word was, Joseph. Took me a minute to parse it. Feels very reminiscent of the Lorian chapters, Refuge, Ring, Test. They both stand out as two of the slowest-paced sections of the book. Why do we spend so much page time in these two movements? Um, Well, gosh. um, I think because, in a sense, this is the point. Right. Uh, what what do we get from Galadriel and from Faramir? Well, we get from Galadriel an elf. Well, okay. I, I would couple these sections again. Right. Uh, acknowledging, as we acknowledged earlier, that this is actually already a pattern by the time we hit Galadriel. Right. We've had Farmer Maggot and Tom Bombadil and Elrond to a certain extent, and then um, certainly Rivendell more broadly, and then uh, Galadriel and then Faramir for for Frodo. Right. This is this is the series of events. What do we get from these sequences? Galadriel gives us not just the elven perspective on diminishment, but also the passing of a test that Galadriel does not believe that she will pass. The passing of a test that Galadriel has, in a sense, already failed. Galadriel is an exile from Valinor because of the choices that she made, because of her desire to rule explicitly. She has preserved Lothlorien because of her desire to rule and to dominate. There is nothing in Galadriel's history that suggests that she is going to pass this test, but she does. And she gives us the elven perspective. Faramir gives us the human perspective, right? He gives us our taxonomy of man, of, of high man and of middle man, like the, like the Rohirrim, and of wild man, of fallen man. And he talks about the virtues of Gondor. And then it's not enough to talk about these things. It's not enough to get the perspective. It's necessary that he prove this, that he take action, that, that he prove himself to be a good and faithful man in that tradition. And he does so, I think beautifully, I will absolutely agree. Fairly slow moving sections, but, but all the more powerful for that. This is kind of why I come to this book. I kind of love it. Yes. Um, Oh, access is giving a a link to a community story building app. That sounds fantastic. Um, let me, how can I do this? I will post this in the show notes, Access if that's all right. If you can uh, send me a note or something just to let me know if that's okay, and I'll, I'll uh, post this in the show notes. This is in the, uh, this is Android only. This is in the Google Play Store. I will definitely check this out. Thank you so much for the recommendation. Um, let me see. Oh, Rayla Lynn says, why do you think Tolkien chooses to end the Two Towers at the point he does? Hey, more on that when we get to the end of the Two Towers because the end of the Two Towers is every bit as purposeful as the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? We talked about about the decision that Peter Jackson made to end the fellowship at a different point than Professor Tolkien did... And Tolkien, like, that is a choice, that is a thing that you can do. You can choose to emphasize certain elements of the story over other elements of the story when you are adapting that story. He made the he made a choice, he made a strong choice, and I think you can argue that, that for the movie in particular, it's the right choice. But Professor Tolkien knew what he was doing when he ended the fellowship where he did. We'll talk about that in two weeks' time when we get to the end of uh, The Choices of Master Samwise, yes. Um... Let me finish that one up and let's take our last question here from Brian. Brian, I, I know that you're joining us for the first time. I hope that you've had a good time tonight. I hope that you're still with us here in the chat, actually, now that we're uh, an hour and 45 minutes into our discussion. Brian asks, is Frodo's feeling of dread for that part of the road and, uh, and says that he feels that there is something evil there that his eyes could not see another moment his connection to the Wraith world comes through? Um, I've puzzled over this, honestly, Brian. I'm not Sure. I'm not sure, because the thing is that there's no ongoing presence in Osgiliath, right? Osgiliath is a battlefield, but it is also like a wasteland. It is not, it is contested land, but it is held by neither side. And there isn't at any point, I think, an understanding that that Osgiliath is currently being occupied by Nazgul forces, either directly or indirectly, right? Either the Nazgul themselves or powerful forces allied directly with the Nazgul, that is, that have come from from Minas Morgul itself. But that road has definitely been used by the Nazgul, right? It has definitely been used as a conduit between, um, between Osgiliath and Minas Morgul. So, it is possible that, yes, yes, because he is now more attuned to the wraith world because of his his injury, you know, the injury caused by the Morgul Blade and his continued exposure to the ring, and, lest we forget, not just the rising shadow, right, not just the coming darkness, not just the fact that Sauron is getting more powerful, and thus we might freely speculate the ring itself is getting more powerful as Sauron's power waxes, so the ring's power waxes, but Frodo is actually leaning into his mastery of the ring. We have now seen him use the ring to directly threaten Gollum twice over, Once to kind of uh, to to force his promise or to to bind his promise, I suppose, and then once back at the forbidden pool in last week's reading to actually threaten him with death. Like that was serious stuff. He's getting perilously close to doing exactly what Galadriel warned him against, which is using the ring to dominate the will of others. He's in a really tough spot right now, which is why the narrative in general is stepping back from him. I'm I'm absolutely open to the possibility that, yes, he is actually sensing something about the road, something about that that flow of of power and of influence down from Minas Morgul into Osgiliath, that, yes, I, I think there may well be something there. He may also just be sensing the corruption of something that was charmed or blessed or had a virtue placed upon it by the ancient Numenorians when they constructed it, right? Osgiliath contained a virtue, like like, kind of akin to dwarven or elven virtue. It was crafted with with care by men of good hearts and is thus kind of magical, as are the two tower cities of of Minas Tirith and, and now Minas Morgul too. So it's possible that the road itself carried some minor enchantment upon it and that has been corrupted, right? Power, the greater the power the greater and more swiftly, uh, the, the greater degree of corruption it suffers and the more swiftly it is corrupted. Those things seem to hold true all across Middle Earth. Yes, that, guys, is going to do it. Thank you all so much for joining me this week. This has been enormous fun. I cannot wait to talk to you all next week. As I say... Decent chance, decent chance. And I'm just going to weep openly as we talk about Sam and Frodo next week in the Stairs of Kiddeth Ungul and Shelob's Lair, Chapters 8 and 9 of Book 4 of The Lord of the Rings, 10 p.m. Eastern, February 15th. I hope you will be able to join me for a little, you know, post-Valentine's Day celebration. Things are going to get a little romantic between Frodo and Sam. They're absolutely not. That was a joke. Anyway, I will talk to you all next week. Until then, take care. Have a great week. Oh, do get in touch with me. You can email me directly, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com, or you can stop by the, the, the flourishing uh, garden that is the Point North Media Forum, pointnorthmedia.com slash forum. You can head on there and uh, share your thoughts on these chapters and on anything else talking related which has crossed your path. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, fly, You fools!